as parents raising children in a very challenging culture, we want our children to grow up to have the freedom, spiritually, psychologically, and financially, to live out their Catholic values and beliefs and help change the world. Successful entrepreneur Mark Wilson is here today to share his innovative program for teaching Catholic entrepreneurship for homeschooling families. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Before we get started, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, click the bell to join our channel. Hello, I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host. Before we get started, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, click the bell to join our channel. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking with Mark Wilson about his exciting new training opportunity, Catholic Entrepreneurship for Homeschooling Families. Mark Wilson is an architect, industrial designer, and entrepreneur with 40 years of international experience. He studied in both American and Italian universities. Having worked in Italy for many years, he acquired cross-cultural, cross-disciplinary, and cross-industry skills in the furniture, yacht, product, and architecture fields. Mark started his company, Curveware, with a declaration to God he calls the Accidental Consecration, dedicating himself and his designs in service to God. He quickly learned that doing such changes everything. From research done over many years, he learned that St. Paul, the early Christians, the Irish monks, followed by the Dominican laity and Franciscan Third Order of the Middle Ages— all worked in a very similar, faith-filled way. It is Mark's mission to regenerate this approach to work so that people can not only work out their salvation, but show society a better way of working and living that gives glory to God. Now, I have multiple links to find Mark and his work in the show notes, but his main website for looking at his incredible design work is coroflot.com slash mwilson, and that's C-O-R-O-F-L-O-T dot com slash mwilson, just the way it sounds. And again, that's in the show notes, along with more links to his training program, Ecclesiastical Ventures, and a shareable PDF as well. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you, Lisa. Oh, it's so good to have you here. I'm fascinated by the work you do, how beautiful it is, and your faith story. So would you step us into what moved you from being an entrepreneur and a business person and a designer into promoting entrepreneurism for Catholic families? Well, um, I had uh, left a partnership uh, while working in Florence and uh, uh, needed to find something to do. And uh, and I had the prototype of this fork, which of course is curveware. And, uh, and because of the circumstances of leaving that uh, relationship, um, I wanted to build an environment where there was no moral compromise. So that led me to this uh, doing this accidental consecration, you know. And you know, I remember the words that I used uh, 30 years ago uh, as if it were uh, yesterday. And uh, I believe God was calling me to do this. So you know, sometimes the circumstances just have to be uh, created. And in fact, a priest had told me I should be an entrepreneur. He told me that uh, when I uh, first graduated from college. And he would say, as the years would pass, and he became, this priest became my first investor. And he would just keep repeating it. And, uh, you know, every year or two. And uh, so I didn't really have the courage to do it because I got married, had a, our, our daughter, who's our oldest of five. And, uh, and those big dreams of climbing the corporate ladder no, no longer mattered to me. So I said a prayer and said, Lord, you know, if, if this is you that believes that this should happen, I don't have the courage to do it. And uh, but if you want to arrange it, then 
go ahead and arrange it and I'll go along with it. And so I believe that's probably what led to that partnership in Italy uh, going south. And there I found myself being an entrepreneur. But because of the circumstances, I became really um, adamant about wanting uh, my work to uh, be free of any kind of moral compromise. So I did this uh, dedication. And, uh, and then I just started seeing uh, things happen that didn't happen in the 12, 13 years uh, before in corporate life. And, uh, you know, we, we, we often grow up and we're trained, certainly in U.S. business schools, to be in charge and be in control and make it happen. And when one is willing to uh, surrender their will to God and put God in charge, and that's what happens with all consecrated works. Right. I mean, this is true for whether it's a religious consecration. So uh, some nuns some friars, monks, whatever. God's in charge. He's the boss. We're there to glorify him with what uh, we do. And I used to believe that, you know, if people couldn't accomplish something that they set out to do, they were lazy, stupid, uncommitted. Well, I learned the hard way that once God is in charge, you can do absolutely everything right. And if it's not God's will for it to happen, it will not happen. And then uh, I used to find this particularly humorous where I would think, wow, I can't believe this worked out. I did everything wrong. There's no logical reason that this should have worked out. So I slowly stumbled in to this way of living and working. For example, and you can interrupt me at any time. No, when, no, this is such an interesting story. Thank you. Uh, at that time when the partnership went south, I got a notice from the U.S. Patent Office that the patent had gone through on uh, on this fork. And it was like, okay, you need 20 million lira uh, uh, to extend the patent throughout Europe, the rest of the world, wherever you want to extend it. And, uh, and I had a week to come up with 20 million lira, which was and about- And what is that in US? Yeah, it was about $20,000 at the time. Okay. About $20,000. And uh, so I left my patent agent's office. I said, thank you. Okay, we'll see what we can do. He said, you know, you need a miracle. You, you need a miracle. Uh, you need someone like, and he named uh, this minister of, uh, uh, of health or labor. I forget what, <laughs> what his uh, title was. And as soon as I left his office, I went to uh, a church which was nearby, just a small church. And and back then, they're everywhere, and they were open then. Now, that's not the case. Uh, So I leave the office, um, and I walk into the church. There's nobody there. It's in the afternoon. Go before the tabernacle, kneel, say a very quick prayer. Lord, you know I have no means to come up with $20,000 in a week, but you can do anything, you know. And uh, so... You know, you have to bring this money if, if you want this to move forward. And um, and I left and I, and I reminded him that it was his work. <laughs> so I said, you know, it's your responsibility to do this. And uh, uh, I, I was very bold in that period of time because when I did the consecration, I had an experience. And, and so I interpreted that experience that I had as an affirmation and uh, as being like a chosen one. And of course, you know, that, that can be a dangerous thing to, to think. But in any event, I left that little church and the only thing I could think of doing, uh, I had no clue what I could do, but a thought came to me to thank a gentleman in Bologna, Italy, who was kind of a mid-sized Italian industrialist, who uh, the week before had taken me throughout uh, Emilia-Romagna you know, where Bologna is, Modena, Parma, that whole area there, to all these manufacturers that could make the fork. And this was like 1990, 1991. And uh, he had a cell phone that was about, it was the size of those like military walkie-talkies you saw in World War II, but like nobody else had cell phones back then. And I remember thinking, wow, this guy gave me half of his day I said, I should thank him. And um, a little side note, when you embark on this way of living, you will just develop some 
discernment capabilities. You'll begin to understand when a thought is your own or if someone downstairs is attacking your imagination. Uh, if you have a great deal of peace, you know, it's coming from somewhere else. And so, you know, I, I know that that was an inspiration to call Bruno. And I called, I said, Bruno, I'm just calling you to, to thank you for giving me so much time last week. Well, how's it going? You know, I said, well, not great, you know, and uh, he goes, I got somebody I want you to meet. Will you hop in the train and come up tomorrow? And I said, sure, I'll go anywhere, do anything. You know, I got to come up with uh, 20 million lira by, uh, you know, next Monday. You know, and this was like Monday. Monday the week before, and I go up there and he introduces me to this uh, gentleman. And this gentleman uh, saw the prototype and he said, um, so let me give you a little background. This very, this fork I designed to be the most comfortable utensil in the world. Okay, effortless to use. And I don't want to use this as some kind of plug for the product, but this is important because I was focused on comfort. The fork, spoon and knife, as we know it, was first set on the table of all places in Florence, Italy, where I was oh, at the time. And um, hasn't changed much in 500 years. And uh, so I was focused on comfort, but there's also something else. My design concept for this was to develop a fork that would have the kind of ease of use that the lever handle has on a door compared to a round doorknob. The reason for this is all I ever knew in the United States uh, was round doorknobs. Uh, this is going back a ways. And in Italy, all they've ever had is a lever handle. And I thought, wow, that is absolutely the most comfortable handle and effortless to use. You know, we'd probably be onto something if we could come up with a design, if I could develop a design that would be to flatware what that lever handle is to the round doorknob. Well, obviously, though this is not like... Uh, a product specifically designed for people with hand problems goes without saying that if it's extremely comfortable and easy to use like that lever handle, which certainly isn't a handicap product, it's gonna be effortless to use for somebody that finds using a regular fork, spoon and knife difficult. And I like to add who hasn't spilled peas back on their plate. And you know, when we have soup, you know, we uh, typically would grab a spoon like this because it's basically just a, a stick with a head on it. So that's it's what I learned later. It's called fine motor, you know, activity. That you know, there, tremor can happen pretty easily. I mean, I don't know. I think everybody's probably spilled soup as well. So I I didn't know when I designed it, and I believe this is part of the inspiration. I believe that God guiding me to design this. Um, that there are benefits that I never considered. So uh, obviously this has implications for 40 million people with arthritis affecting the hands or 40 some million people with carpal tunnel. And so this gentleman in Bologna, Italy said, listen, when you go back to Florence, would you go to Rome tomorrow if I can get you 10 minutes of this gentleman's time? And the gentleman he was gonna introduce me to worked for that minister that my patent agent said, you need to find somebody like that. You need a miracle. You need to sit down with someone like this. So next thing you know, I go back to Florence and uh, cash was really tight. Then I bought a ticket, went to Rome uh, and uh, met with this gentleman. And that was a fairly interesting story as well, because it turned out that this uh, young attorney who was the president of the Italian labor union, youngest graduate attorney in Italy. I think he was 28 or 29 at the time. He happened to have a right brain injury that made it possible for him to hold this exactly the same way I hold it or you would hold it, right? And um, I sat down in front of him. I'm talking for five minutes. He says, you have five minutes left. And then he reached over and he grabbed something and I could see the way he grabbed it, that he had a right brain injury. So I reached out, I grabbed his hand. I figured I've got five minutes left. I got to do something radical here. And I just shoved it. I just shoved this into his hand. And I said, and you hold that just like me. And as far as I'm concerned, you're not physically challenged when it comes to eating. 
And he looked at me like this, and I said, oh, my God, he's going to call the carabinieri. You know, he's, I don't know. He's going to call the guards or something. And he looked at me for a second, and then he set the prototype down, and he picked up the phone and called Italian Health. Because I don't care what you're doing, you drop it. And, uh, well, this is Rome, and it's kind of like the Vatican. Uh, <laughs> where things Slow moving. Here, Yes, we're here. Things get, can happen in an hour, whatever. Uh-huh. It's going to be at least a day over there, multiplied by twenty-four. So I didn't have the money for a hotel. I took the train back to Florence. Got up at uh, four o'clock. Got there in time to go to the meeting at nine. And they went in the back after he said, "Tell them what you told me." They typed out a contract for twenty million lira, which is a, to the penny what I needed uh, to uh, for R and D. Uh, with the stipulation that we have manufactured curveware in Italy, which we do. And they wanted to distribute um, curveware throughout Europe. I go back to Florence and my patent agent says, well, go choose your house in the Cayman Islands. You just have no clue the value of this contract and how much you're going to need to make of this, how much how, the volumes. So I thought that was it. This is great. So no, that was a great, that was a great example of something very positive. Now here's the very negative thing. Uh, a, a week or two later, I go to the newsstand to get the newspaper, the Giornale Pubblica, La Nazione, the various Italian newspapers, front page, CEO, CFO, COO of Italsanita, the one I had a contract, they all went to prison. <laughs> and that made my contract worth nothing. But uh, in God's providence, I was able to get them to pay on the contract. So I did get the money, was able to move the project forward. And then when my wife was expecting our second child, I gave her the horrible news that I had to get on a plane the next day to come to the U.S. to start Curveware. And I'd come back and get her. And, uh, and so it's been a real roller coaster uh, ride. What happens is once you, the lights start to go on and you realize, uh, for example, I went to the ordination of a, a young priest. And after we were at the reception, a woman asked me what I what I do. And I uh, really didn't want to talk about it, you know. And uh, so I said something kind of crazy. I, for, I forget the comment, actually, that I made. And she said, you consecrated your company. And I go, what? She goes, you consecrated your company. That's why those things happen. She goes, uh, you know, dedicated. I said, oh, absolutely. I dedicated it to God without question. She goes, well, you didn't really think things were going to work the way they did before, did you? And, you know, I found that to be very providential because that woman got me on the path to say, okay, what's going on here? I certainly can't be the first person who has done this. Excuse me, just one second. And, um, and of course, I began reading the Bible, I began doing research. And of course, the great thing about Italy is in Florence in particular, you can go back and get the tax records of someone a thousand years ago, you know, (laughs) probably further in the archives. And so Italy was the perfect uh, place to begin digging in to get really kind of bulletproof uh, data information on how these things worked. And this kind of leads me to what you were saying before we went live that, you know, it really means a great deal to me that we start everything with prayer because um, I've come to realize over many years uh, the importance of prayer for everything. And, uh, And without it, what you're really saying is that you're in charge and you're in control. And that is a reality that uh, many Catholic entrepreneurs um, really don't understand the fact that to really fulfill the will of God, you have to put him in charge. You have to consecrate your work. What I've seen in Catholic business schools across the country, and I've lectured at a, a few of them, is that what they're really doing and what they're teaching is secular entrepreneurship with a lot of Catholic flavoring. Mm. Okay. And uh, yes, as you said in the introduction, this is about uh, helping Catholic homeschooling families. 
but um, it, it, it's, it's basically the same thing, whether you're helping a high school student start their venture or an adult. And in fact, I really love the idea that parents and children start their venture together mm-hmm. because that's, uh, that's what they did in the Middle Ages. But um, I'm going to stop here and say one more thing, and then I'll stop and let you ask some questions. But, but it's, it's really this simple. And a lot of people will understand it intellectually, but they won't understand it in their heart. And uh, I mean, I could give dozens of examples with where that was the case and is the case with myself. You know, you understand it intellectually, but you're not ready to really understand, really understand it in a, in a deep way. But I believe that St. Paul, was the most effective evangelist because he was a, uh, uh, well, we could talk about the Holy Family and how they worked and that that's kind of a parallel subject. But with regards to St. Paul, as many know, I'm sure, he was a military tent maker and he supported himself. And he claims in, in the acts that, you know, I have a right to be supported for what I'm doing, but he chose to support himself. Well, he used to get some pretty big contracts. So, you know, he'd turn to Aquila and Priscilla, uh, who were also tent makers, and say, hey, we got to make uh, 50 tents here. But if they got an order in the hundreds, then what he would do from everything that I've discerned and learned, and I'm, I'm trying to get more information on this, it's not easy. This is the most difficult it's much easier to get information on the Irish monks and the Dominican laity and the Franciscan friars. But it only stands uh, to reason. Um, St. Paul would never hire anyone or teach anyone or get collaborators that weren't people of goodwill. Uh, Jesus Christ did not waste his time with people that were not of goodwill. Uh, and those that were obstinate. That's why he remained completely silent with Her- before Herod. It's like, I'm wasting my time. I'm not going to waste my time. He didn't utter a word. But when someone is uh, a person of goodwill, they're open to the truth. So he would have a bunch of people that are open to the truth. And, you know, I can just see St. Paul. He's offering mass in the morning. And then, you know, it was a Jewish tradition to do like the liturgy of the hours. So he was working and praying and working and praying and working and praying and working and praying. Well, what happens in an environment like that amongst people that are people of goodwill is they catch the faith, right? And when you were someone like St. Paul and you see these unbelievable things. I mean, I mentioned a couple of extraordinary things that happened with me. I can imagine the miraculous things, you know, happening with St. Paul. And so I could see where he was doing two things. Yes, they're working. They're earning money. They're making tents. But he was gathering and forming other evangelists. And so his efforts were greatly multiplied. And as they would say in business schools, you know, scaled up, right, to them get the word out, spread the gospel in a very significant way. What I've found is that this lasts for about 150 years before secular society does everything it can to stomp it out. Then the Irish monks uh, kind of regenerated it. And then uh, same thing, time goes by, but the Irish monks go into France and Italy and then the Italian laity remembered those things that the Irish had done. So they approached St. Francis and St. Dominic because this was in the first couple of years um, of the founding of those two orders. And both St. Dominic and St. Francis understood this. So this is why there's like churches everywhere in Florence. They're everywhere. And it's because every one of those churches had a corporazione. There's the, 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 they call them arte fiorentine. Uh, which in English would be like the guilds, but the guilds were the association, right? But the corporations, so if you were a a gold master and made gold products, that was your for-profit company. And every one of them, uh, from what I could see, most of them were tied in to the parish with the Franciscans or the Dominicans, uh, that were supporting them. And I feel like one thing I need to say, none of this would be possible if it wasn't for my spiritual director, Father Tom Collins. It just wouldn't, it just wouldn't happen. 
because one, you need that prayerful support. You need their discernment capabilities because it's very rare that the laity will have the discernment capabilities of a religious. It's just, it's pretty rare. So I guess, you know, anything can happen that God wants to happen, but, but it's really makes a lot of sense to have that spiritual director who, uh, who uh, guides it. So kind of wrap this aspect of it up. When I started realizing what they had done in the past, uh, Father Tom Collins and I sat down and we said, you know what we need to do? We need to regenerate that, but we need to do it in a way that makes sense for today. Because if you Google Guild, you're going to find tons of misinformation. I would say probably 95 to 99 out of 100 people have a misunderstanding of what the guilds really, really were. And how a completely pagan secular society like Florence, Italy, became Catholic and was run by Catholics. That they took over, you know, City Hall. You know, so, in other words, um, sort of a, a merchant class of people running businesses, but praying and working and praying and working like the religious orders had, were able yes. to rebuild a Catholic society in Florence. Yes, and they asked them specifically to write the rule for their lives. So uh, in Florence, it was pretty much Franciscans and Dominicans. All, mm -hmm. all of those corporazioni, those for-profit corporations that were working in this way, they, you know, uh, stopped throughout the day to do the prayers to fulfill the requirements. But there's other aspects. They all had patron saints and, uh, and they all had a philanthropic work that they were committed to. And what they learned through the process is the beauty of poverty. So when you have very successful companies, so let's bring this into today, okay? So like I was saying, if you, if you look at a lot of Catholic organizations, let's say Catholic guilds, Oh, you'll see that they're nostalgic. They're sitting there and making woodworking or Gregorian chants. And I love Gregorian chants. I want to be clear about that. But when it comes to making products, if you could transport those people uh, from 800 years ago to today, they would think that this nostalgic stuff is ludicrous. And I believe at one time, you know, nostalgia was considered a mortal sin in the Catholic Church. I mean, I guess it depends, of course, upon the degree of nostalgia. But if someone is nostalgic and they're letting this false understanding and this romantic notion or whatever, however you would describe it, kind of run things, it's not good. So none of those people from 800 years ago would be doing, uh, you know, woodworking. They were the big innovators. Mm -hmm. The first two patents were of a guild, uh, a guild map. I mean, uh, yeah, the master of one of these corporations. Brunelleschi, who did the famous dome in Florence, he got the first two patents, and he was an extremely serious Catholic. You won't find this anywhere other than, you know, documents in Florence, Italy, but it's well uh, documented. Okay, Mark, I want to um, have you spend the the last sort of segment in our conversation, um, because I feel like so much is probably resonating with our audience. A couple of things. One is most homeschools have a patron saint or are consecrated in a sense prayerfully uh, to God in some sort of way. So we're going to resonate with that idea immediately, that God's in charge ultimately of our homeschools. Um, we also want to turn out a quality product. We're looking at our children's souls and their impact on the world. And so we're already kind of in that mode and innovating on little budgets and, and embracing the poverty of having one parent at home full time most of the time. A lot of us moms and some stay-at-home dads do have sidelines, but, but we get it. We're juggling a lot and we're trying to make right. it all work for the sake of our higher values. Say a little bit about how Catholics interested in your program would apply and what would they learn in your program? What are kind of the nuts and bolts okay. of what this program takes them through? Okay, well, uh, this is something that we've just launched like weeks ago. And there's a family that are members of uh, the Institute of Christ the King out in Missouri. And it's father and son. And the 15-year-old has just a remarkably deep faith. And I told him, it doesn't matter what it is he wants to start. This will probably not be the venture that he 
you know, will wind up doing the rest of his life. And, uh, but I said, you're going to learn the things that you need to learn. So there's three components. And uh, so like throughout the week, uh, you know, one day relates to the spiritual uh, formation, the prayer life, these things. The beautiful thing about most, most Catholic homeschoolers um, is that they, they really get this because the, typically the mother uh, is putting a big emphasis, like my daughter puts a big emphasis on, on religious education. So it is remarkable to have a conversation with a 15-year-old that understands these concepts better, this is not an exaggeration, than uh, college students. And so I said, okay, well, Michael, we, we'll kind of dispense with that. We'll, we'll use Monday for, for something else. Then one day of the week is for um, entrepreneurial related things, you know, different types of company structure and, uh, you know, what's appropriate for this kind of business. And, and there's things like, I'm just going over it in kind of broad strokes, you know, how do you raise money and how you build a management team. And my specialty, of course, is product-based businesses. So whether it's surgical instruments or consumer products or furniture, it's going to be something that's going to be made. And the reason that I like that more than service related ecclesiastical ventures is that there's a very good likelihood if it's a product that's going to have very big demand that it could result in uh, a butler building going up and some manufacturing equipment and 100, 150 employees. And just imagine 100, 150 employees uh, working and praying and working and praying throughout the day. And I want to step back to those middle ages. That's the way that it worked. And they started at like nine and 10 years old. Because at nine and 10 years old, they'd be sweeping the floor or running errands or doing whatever. But then when they're 11 and 12, they're, they're starting to make suggestions. They're starting to recognize things that can be improved. And now they're getting greater responsibilities. By the time they're 15, they pretty much know everything about how that corporazione is, is working. By the time they're 16 or 17, they're ready to start their own venture. And that's how it was possible for a teenage boy and girl, or I would like to say young man and young woman that were very mature to get married before they were 20 and have the means to have a family, support that family. The Middle Ages, contrary to what most people believe, is probably the best period in human history. There's more upward mobility than any other time. And uh, it's really an extraordinary time that's been uh, uh, lack of a better word, trashed by those that are not, let's say, friends of the church. Uh, yeah, because the church would have been a you know extremely dominant culture at that time. But um, so so the steps would be that they apply for your program and then they learn the spiritual, they learn business structures, they learn about building a team. Um, yes. What else is going to be incorporated into their learning? Uh, well, um, we have a the makings of a of a forum where I will be laying out the various subject matters. So it'll be like, uh, there'll be various documents for like raising money or uh, confidentiality agreements, you know. Uh, what, what I'm hoping will happen, and of course, like any entrepreneurial uh, thing, you have to learn how it's going to start and how it's going to scale up. So I personally can uh, teach about 30 students over the course of the week. And some of those days are flexible. Uh, other information is given to everyone who logs in, right? And, um, and then they can post uh, questions. You know, you have to go, what happens if this thing blows up? What, what are we going to do? Uh, and of course, we're limited to a couple of languages, English and Italian. Uh, but, you know, if anybody speaks either of those two languages, it really doesn't matter where they are in the world other than time zone uh, restrictions. But I love the idea of there being these teenagers that are logging into the forum where they say, hey, I'm working on this. And what are you working on? And oh, hey, here's how I solved that problem. And the beauty of this is something was actually, I forget who it was, but it's a book written by, I think, a faithful Protestant called Moving at the Speed of Trust. And this is something that's so important because um, it doesn't matter. Uh, I've, I've met with a number of venture capitalists. I've raised a 
fair amount of money. And uh, it's not something that's really entrepreneurs want to do, but it's kind of necessary if there's needs for tooling and uh, 150,000 patents and you just don't have that in your back pocket. And um, when a venture capitalist is going to put a, you know, I don't know, two and a half, five million dollars into a venture, the thing that takes them a year is the due diligence because the team could have all graduated from MIT or Harvard. That doesn't tell you that they're trustworthy. And there are just in, it's a lot of examples of uh, one relatively recent of a big pharma company and the CEO, you know, taken, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars because $50 million is seed money in the farm in the pharma world. And then all of a sudden, you know, they discover this product is no good. And, uh, you know, and this is where one's faith comes in. When you realize something that is really significant, being surrounded by trusting and trustworthy people, you can make those decisions to say, we're going to risk the company. We're not going to move forward. And we're going to try and figure out how these families can survive. But we're not going to be a party to this immoral way of doing business. And there aren't many corporate leaders that will do that. Mm. It's a very, very small percentage. So, you know, as you move forward, and the more money that is involved, the stakes keep getting raised higher and higher and higher. And this is where having a spiritual combat formation is really very important. I would recommend that everybody say the Auxilium Christianorum prayers of the Deloren Fathers. Uh, Father Ripperger, the founder, is an exorcist. And they're just great prayers to, to say every day to make sure your cage isn't getting rattled. And I mean specifically like demonic oppression or obsession or worse. And I've seen even worse happen. So when a lot is at stake, especially when it comes to the salvation of souls, you're going to come under attack without a doubt. So if you have a company with 150 employees, like one of my stockholders is a remarkable Catholic, more than 25% of his employees have converted to Catholicism. I mean, that's a hard thing for me to wrap my head around. But we've had long conversations because he invested so long ago before I had worked out all the details. So now we're talking about how he needs to tweak his business, you know, so that the crazy things that were happening that uh, just don't seem normal, right? And that, that's why you need a spiritual director because it's hard to know, you know? Bad things happen to uh, good people. And, you know, you can't say everything is uh, demonic, you know, of course. But if it happens repeatedly, you start to see a pattern. It happens at a certain time. You really want a spiritual director and go, here's what's going on. And unfortunately, you know, we, we live in a world where most pastors haven't been formed to, to deal with this. And uh, even bishops. A uh, bishop that I'm fairly close with said, when I was in Rome, everything was a psychosis. That's how they did, explained away demonic uh, involvement. It was a psychosis, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, he learned that that is not the case in a pretty spectacular way. <laughs> and so he's one of the few bishops to have, you know, set up an office and they have an exorcist because he recognizes the reality of this. So, oh, yeah. again, it's bottom so line important. here, it's all about our salvation. Mm-hmm. We work out our salvation. We want to be in an environment where we sanctify everything we do. And it's beautiful because when you have collaborators, they don't see it as this competitive thing. And it's wonderful to have somebody alongside of you who you welcome correcting you, you know, because you know they're doing it for the best reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, you are a treasure, Mark, with all of your experience and and deep knowledge of this for a family to be kind of forming maybe the germ of an idea of something entrepreneurial they might create or or even a service. But with your expertise in product creation and all, all of everything that goes along with that, but also the spiritual side of things, a way to be that Catholic presence in the world. So grateful to have you with us today, Mark. You want to close us out with a final thought? 
Yes, well, I, you know, people are going to be thinking about this because it's only uh, logical. One of the beautiful things about the internet and even the craziness that's happened in the past couple of years, because there's people that I'm having Zoom and meetings with that probably don't hardly know how to turn on a computer, right? And and this is part of what makes it happen because, you know, there is a cost associated with, with this teaching. But I'm able to charge for a month what I used to charge per hour when there are 30 students, right? Because my reason for doing this uh, is not, um, I, I just don't, I don't see this as, as business, but there are expenses associated with it. Uh, but um, so, so that's kind of how uh, that works. And then something that um, we'll see how this uh, rolls out in addition to uh, ecclesiastical ventures, uh, I've worked with an attorney in Denver who's a venture attorney. He's an attorney who puts funds together, big funds together. Uh, and we call it Nicodemus Ventures because St. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, these were two businessmen. And they had a big, it was a big deal for them to take Jesus down from the cross. That's it. That just ruined all of the relationships they had in business. They were gone like that. Right. And so I, I can just imagine the conversations they had with Jesus about business and how business ought to take uh, place. And, and there are writings of different mystics like Catherine Emmerich and Maria Vagrida and, and others where you can read these things and get a sense of these very personal uh, inner relationships. So our hope with Curveware is that uh, the majority of the, the vast majority of the, of the dividends, our dividends will fund Nicodemus Ventures so that these Catholic parents and children that start a venture can uh, know that there's a source uh, to fund their venture it's the kind of source, the way that it should be. Well, one closing thought. Imagine a world with, you know, I don't know. We could throw out names like Walmart and Amazon. So there's some big, big companies where the leadership have basically taken vows of poverty. Now, I don't mean vows of poverty like the religious. It's a very, that's a different thing. But this is what happened in the Middle Ages in Florence, Italy. Uh, we'll, we'll use it in today's terms. If it was a two, $300 million company, the CEO could say, well, you know, we're empty nesters. There's my wife and I, and uh, we don't need a, a $5 million a year salary and all these perks. You know, $150,000 really enables us to. They live a simple uh, existence and they embrace it and they realize the freedom that comes with being detached from all this stuff. And, you know, we live in a country where it's just part of the way that we're raised. You know, the, this great exorcist, Father Ripperker says, if there is a national sin or demon who's, you know, most influential, it's the demon of greed, avarice. And it's just so pervasive. And, you know, and I, by the grace of God, you know, lived in Italy in a period of time where all I could bring was in two suitcases. I didn't have my two sailboats, BMW, all this other stuff. I had just a few things, a great view of Florence. This was before I met my wife. And, and I felt so free. It was not a religious experience. It wasn't intentional. It's just the way that it was. But I began to see how I didn't have any of these things that I used to have, but reminded me of this thing that St. John of the Cross said, you know, possessing everything and having nothing. You know, you know, you start to think about that. You know, how do you have this feeling of having everything? You know, you first of all, you know, you have no debt. You have no, you don't owe anybody anything. You just have a very simple existence. And there's an enormous freedom in there on many levels. So I hope I haven't overwhelmed you with, with all of this. But uh, I'm really no, very appreciative. It, no, it's really, it's lovely and it's exciting, Mark. Thank you so much. Um, really for taking the time out of your busy day to be with us and, and to share with us from the heart about this kind of being in business, being a holy path, being a path that can draw other souls to God while you're building a really fine business, a really good working business that, that gives glory to God in a lot of ways. Um, hey, one last everybody, closing thought. 
Okay. I'm sorry. Like those those companies, those Catholic for-profit companies in Florence, Italy, were such wonderful places to work that you know it just drew people in, and that's how Catholicism took over Florence, Italy, because it was founded by the Romans. You can go to uh, uh, Piazza della Repubblica, not far from the Duomo. That's where the Roman grid is, and <coughs> and so it was absolutely pagan in its foundation and formation. But you know, when people of goodwill see that someone else is happier, they're joyful, they're peaceful. Everybody wants that. And people, executives, there's lots of examples of executives taking huge cuts in salary to have a job where they can sleep like a baby and uh, and not have all that stress in their life. So it's a wonderful way to work. And, uh, and you know, I would welcome anyone, you know, reaching out to me with any questions they have. And, Okay, so is the best way for them to reach out to you to go to the coraflot.com M. Wilson? Um, they can just email me at uh, Mark W, M A R K W, at curveware.com. And there's no E in the middle. So it's C U R V W A R E.com. And, and if they just put like Ecclesiastical Ventures in the subject line, then, uh, you know, I'll flag it and, uh, and be happy to answer any questions that anyone has. So they just give me 24 hours. Yeah, no, fantastic. I hope lots of you will reach out. Um, This program just being birthed into the world, just starting to find its footing is based on just an incredible life so far and a lot of research. So thank you again, Mark. And uh, everybody, please stay tuned for our short feature coming right up. Thank you. Welcome to the Thriving Catholic Homeschool Blueprint. My name is Paula Siskinik. I'm the co-founder of the Catholic Homeschool Network, Conferences, and Community. This is step three in my blueprint. Print out one grid for each child in your family. Now, the first subject or item to add into that grid, and this is the grid for each child for this coming year, Please add the one goal per child that you wrote down from the previous video and the worksheets that you did. Now, I think the first thing that people always say to me and comment when they look at those grids is it doesn't really look like a typical brick and mortar school day. And you know what? That's right. I did that on purpose because you see, we are so lucky. We get to do homework. That's right, as part of our average, ordinary school day. We get to have our children work on mastery, not just checking off boxes, not just finishing up the assignments and trying to plow through the books. So go ahead, add in the most important skills that you picked up and highlight that one. Remember that one goal can be reading, math facts, maybe it's time management skills, learning to write a paragraph, learning about the stars, volunteer work in the community. Go ahead, pop in that one goal, that one subject in the grid for each one of your children. The next step is to take an inventory of all the, what I like to call, non-negotiables in a family life. I have another set of sheets called reflection, reflection worksheets, and these will help you to think through things like what subject, if any, do you want to do as a family? How often? I always recommend that these are used as discussion prompts for you and for your spouse. It's a great way for you to get both on the same page before you jump into the new school year. Actually, they're great any time of year too. Now, once you've done this process, you've printed out a grid for each child, you've put in their one goal, You went through all the non-negotiables. Go ahead, take a breath, a sigh of relief because you have focused on the uniqueness of your child. You have a realistic goal for your child by choosing that one goal this year to see progress and growth. And you have taken into account 
your family's life, their seasonal life, what's going on in this year, you've set your life first. And now we're going to layer in the school. As you create the plan for each child, whether you're using a set packaged curriculum or designing your own, or maybe a combination of both, these are just some great guidelines for you to map in all those subjects, but always highlighting the most important one. The majority of schoolwork you see can be accomplished on four days a week, except of course maybe math or languages, where you kind of need that little bit by bit uh, learning every day to see progress. You can add use that extra day for kind of catch-up day or scheduling doctor's appointments. What I do want you to include though is read aloud time, maybe three, four times a week, something you can do in the evening. It's super fun, super important. It brings the family together. And please do not stop when the kids are reading on their own because as an added bonus, reading lays the foundation for higher level thinking. I could go on and on about the benefits of reading aloud, but perhaps that could be another way. workshop I do someday. So next, what I do is I ask my children to take ownership of what they are responsible for each day. Of course, when the kids are very little, maybe they're just learning to read or write, I would determine those daily assignments I want them to cover, and I would keep that in a binder. But as my children got older, past those primary years, Around the 10 to 12 year old age, about the time they start arguing with you, I would tailor the overall big picture of education unique to the strengths, interests, passions of that individual child, focusing on that one area of growth. But I would suggest that at about sixth grade, you just give a weekly list of the assignments you want them to do and have them map out each day of the week when they're going to do that. Now you're gonna to have to model it for them the first time around. Maybe give yourself that first month to get adjusted to this. You know, this requires your children to begin learning a life skill, time management, and more importantly, taking ownership of the things that they have determined they're going to get done. You can look over the assignments. You can see if there's any adjustments that need to be made. And the other thing I really, really encourage for you to do is to take some time out for yourself. I'll see you in the next video and may God bless you abundantly. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you and thank you for joining us.